at John chapter 14. We'll be picking it up in verse 16. And if you're just joining us, let me let you know that we are working through the Gospel of John. It is like a photo album filled with pictures of Jesus' life and ministry, meant to show us who he was and what he did and all that we can learn and how we can be helped by it. Let me say, as we jump into this passage tonight, if it feels like we are catching mid-conversation, mid-stream, that is correct. Because the conversation that we began to eavesdrop on last week began in verse 1, ran up to verse 15. That's where we cut off the loaf of bread last week. Tonight will be 16 through 26, and then it actually continues on to next week. And the very, very quick version of what happened last week is Jesus went through a part of the area called Samaria that many self-respecting Jews totally went around for the purpose of a divine appointment with a specific woman. She needed to hear the good news of the kingdom, and he wanted the gospel to spread to the whole region of Samaria through her. And so he stepped through many, many social norms. He broke through multiple glass ceilings, if you will, and he has taken the gospel to her. Tonight, we pick up with that conversation, and I'll go ahead and let you know I have seven points tonight, but fear not, some of them are very short, but they all need to be illuminated, so we better get after it. Let's look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, I told you, hot start. Jesus just comes out right out of the gate, and he speaks directly to her heart. Now, what people think is happening here, at least some of them, is that because she didn't really pick up on what he was putting down in the first 15 verses, at least not fully, he put her in a situation that she could not escape. She could not escape morally, she could not escape theologically, and he arrests her with the good news of the gospel and with the good news of the kingdom. But the way he gets there is through speaking to her particular situation, to her sin. And so when we look at this, and we don't know all of the backstory here, we don't know how she got into this situation, we don't know if she had husbands that had died or had divorced her, she had divorced him, we don't know, but what we know, whatever it was, it wasn't good, and the situation she was in now, sadly, she was essentially shacking up with this other guy, and so all of this needed to be addressed. And so in those three little verses there, we actually have the first three of my points, and here's the first one. That a couple living together before they are married is not God's kingdom way. Now, of course, this is not the main point of the passage. This is not something huge on the radar for John. But it's clear here in the text from the way Jesus addresses this that we need to make mention of it. And let me say this. If you are kind of middle-aged or above, this is probably not news to you. If you've been around the Bible, this is probably not news to you. This is what... The Bible was taught in what Christians have believed since the beginning. But both in my travels and here in the city, I've found that this pretty obvious scriptural concept is news for a lot of Gen X, a lot of Gen Y, and certainly for Gen Z. 
this kind of cohabitive pattern, if you want to think of it like that, has become so normative, even within the community of people that do name Jesus as Savior, that we need to not lose sight of this. And of course, the way it needs to be addressed needs to be with immense grace and all of the things that we would think to. But God's pattern has always been one man, one woman, one God, one covenant of marriage for one lifetime. That's the ideal. And this lady, obviously operating outside of that ideal. And so we need to see what the text says, and we need to keep this before us, and then we need to be loving and gentle and clear in how we deal with it. Now, the second point, and here we are moving more toward what I think John really has in view here, is that Jesus knows things that only God, and we know because he is God. And we saw this a few weeks ago. In fact, I think we've seen this truth twice, and we're only in chapter 4. And so this, if you want to call it the divine knowledge of Jesus, almost this mysterious knowledge of how does he know that, it's an important piece of John revealing who Jesus is. And remember, that's kind of the big E on the eye chart for the Gospel of John. Who is Jesus? He's God, fully man, fully God. He is the Messiah. And one of the ways he reveals that is through this supernatural knowledge. Now, you may recall that part of the application we made before, I want to make again, and I want to make again and again and again every time it comes up. And part of the good news here is this means that we can't hide anything from Jesus. Anything. So whatever that thing is, whether anybody else knows it or just you and God know it, it's not a secret to him. And let me say this to you as an encouragement to bring that darkness out into the light. If it's not a secret to you and it's not a secret to him, then what are we afraid of in bringing that darkness out into his light? Now, I understand the concern that you don't want to go around and, and tell everybody your business. I understand that when it comes to people, but we're not talking about people. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about a guy who is unlike any other guy, a guy who knows what only he and you know. So let's take a page from the Gospel of John here as an invitation to bring our darkness out into the light to be healed. And let me give you some gospel good news that hopefully will inspire you to do that. Jesus already knows. He knows more about it than you think that he knows. And his love is enough to cover it. I've talked to so many people. They, they know what they're doing is wrong, whatever it is. But just the shame that they feel in that constant script of, man, I've been a Christian for 25 years. I ought to be over this by now. I ought to be whatever. Don't let that shame hinder what God wants to do in your life. Because here's the third thing that goes right along with the second thing. Jesus kindly but clearly addresses this woman's sin, and he does the same thing with us. See, there is a version of Jesus that is out there. It's not from the Bible, but it's in church culture that God loves us so much and he accepts us just as we are, period. 
Now, does he love us so much? You better believe it. Does he accept us as we are? You better believe it. But part of what Christians have always believed is that when we meet Jesus, we enter a a process called progressive sanctification in which Jesus changes us more and more into his image and into his likeness. That is the plan that he has for us. And he uses sermons and podcasts and music and trials and all kinds of things to to move us in a direction. So God loves us so much that he accepts us as we are, and then he shapes us into what he wants for us, to become more like Christ. So set all that to say, This is a particularly important word for us in our historical moment because the way the gospel gets communicated, not here, but in so many churches, and I hear this when I listen to other sermons and so on, it has basically been distilled down to a type of life coaching where basically God exists just to help us achieve our own dreams. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is the bad news that we are sinners He is addressing this woman. He is saying, you've had five husbands. The person you're living with now is not even your husband. He is bringing her the bad news. But then where he goes in this passage is the wonderful news of how she can be made free. And what what he's already told her is there is living water that is available that is unlike any other living water. It is the only true and lasting satisfaction. So here you are, lady, going to the well of Husbands, but you're putting your bucket in the wrong well. That's always going to eventually run out. They're going to let you down. They're going to die. They're going to divorce you. Something's going to happen. But you come to me, and I'll give you living water that never runs out. But see, Jesus gives her the bad news so that the good news is really good. The same is true for us. We don't truly appreciate the good news of the gospel until we hear that dark chord resonate of the bad news of our sin. I'm not alone in thinking this. In fact, Thomas Watson, 17th century pastor, said it like this, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Spurgeon said it like this, too many people think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with the rope around his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil that has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Friends, folks who understand the bad news, understand the good news. People who know what it's like to be weighed down with a millstone of our own sin know what it's like to experience the freedom that only comes from Jesus. So let me ask you two questions here. Number one, when's the last time you thought about the bad news and did it make the good news good? Number two, When you think about the gospel, do you see the bad news showing the greatness of the good news? And here's what I mean by that. I want us to be careful here. We got to see what Jesus is doing. He 
talks about her sin, but then he spends a lot of time talking about the good news, right? So, so we don't want to focus just on this. This is where we focus over here, but you got to have this so that you can get this. Now, let me ask one kind of bonus content question for us here, too, because I also think there is some good harvest that we can make in our own personal evangelism from what Jesus does here. When you talk to other people about Jesus, at some point in those conversations, and sometimes they take nine months, trust me, I understand, but do we ever talk about the bad news? Because until someone sees their sin, they don't see the need for salvation. Remember, the gospel that is getting heralded today is basically God comes along and he just makes your life better. So at some point, people have to hear that we're separated from God, that we have a need, that there is a chasm fixed between sinful us and holy him, and only Jesus can make it right. And however we get there, we got to make sure there's bad news that points to good news. So let's take all of this as an encouragement toward the communication of the whole gospel and an intense focus on the beauty of Jesus. And the woman starts to get it. Look at verse 19. It says here, after hearing what Jesus says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, I don't know that she's fully got it together yet, but she's going in the right direction. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, <clears throat> a little bit of the backstory here. On this mountain, both the Jews and the Samaritans recognized that God had commanded their forefathers to identify a special place set aside for worshipping him. The Jews had the whole Hebrew canon. They recognized it as scripture. They chose Jerusalem. The Samaritans only recognized the Pentateuch, the first five books, and they noted that Abraham built an altar to God at Shechem, which was overlooked by Mount Gerizim, and so that's where the Israelites had shouted the blessings promised by God before they entered the Promised Land, and so voila, that's where their temple went. But instead of getting embroiled in a controversy about where the building should be, listen to what Jesus does. He just cuts past that. And he said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, I don't think Jesus is just saying here, hey, that stuff didn't matter. He's not saying that. But here's what he is saying. Here's what's really about to matter. All of that. <clears throat> where the temple was is about to be irrelevant because I am now here. That's what he's getting at here. Point four, Jesus is inaugurating an entirely new way of relating to God. And it's not going to be tied to a temple. It's not going to be tied to a sacrificial simple, uh, system. rather. And what he's getting at is once the Holy Spirit comes <coughs> and indwells the believer, the temples are going to be portable, and they are going to be plenteous. And you're not going to have to go over there to worship God and kill animals or bring spices or grain offerings or whatever. 
you can worship right where you are. And you can take that show on the road. <coughs> and that is what he is getting at here. That he is bringing this entirely new way of relating to God. Now, this little bit here about you worship what you don't, do not know. The Samaritans clearly did not have all of the scriptures or they didn't recognize them, better said. So they, <coughs> they didn't get it. But he's saying here, salvation is from the Jews. And what Jesus is pointing out, this is number five, is that he, the one who is bringing salvation to the world, is coming out from among the Jewish people. Now, again, this is not news to us. Because here we stand in 2023 looking backwards at the whole thing <coughs> all at once. Not the case for them. He was publicly identifying himself as a Jew. Again, that's just a fact to us. But there are some people, if you want to call them scholars, that actually think that the Gospel of John borders or is outright anti-Semitic. That's not true. Jesus was a Jew. And on top of that, him pointing out, salvation's coming through me. It's coming from the Jews, further underscores, and we can dispense with that idea. But then on top of that, <coughs> let's think about the glory that this is for us. Salvation is coming from the Jews. Did you know from the start of the Bible, promise after promise after promise was made that there would be a Redeemer, there would be a Savior, there would be a Messiah that would come from the Jews. And so by Jesus making this statement, he is saying to us again and again and to everyone who reads this, God keeps his promises. It's just like what he said he was going to do, down to the letter. So again, she may not have understood all this, but we can see it now. And this is another reminder that we have, almost a divine post-it note, that God is faithful, he's true, he's trustworthy, and when all the sinking sand of the world is fading and failing around us, we can stand firm if our lives are built on the solid rock of Christ. Salvation is coming out for the Jews. Look at verse 23. But the hour is coming, <coughs> and now here, so this is specifically saying Jesus' death, resurrection, and eventually ascension to God. He's saying the season that we're in, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, <coughs> and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And what he's getting at here is point six. Six. There we go. I don't usually have seven points, so I ran out of fingers there and didn't realize it. But I digress. Number six. God is a spirit, and he is seeking true worshipers that worship in spirit and truth. Now, let's break this down, because there's really three points in one here, but I knew people could not stand ten points, so we just went with seven. How about that, all right? Just a little behind the music today. God is a, God is a spirit. So, again, not news, but important. Because what did many people in this time, in this area, 
in other religions believe? Well, God was all kinds of things. He was in this idol over here, or today, fast forward, he's in this tree, or he's in all of us, but not in the way Christianity talks about, in some panentheistic or pantheistic way. And so for, for Jesus to say God is a spirit, he is making a very important theological statement. It's the same thing that we see Colossians 1.15, 1 Timothy 1.17, Hebrews 11.27, and he's saying that God is invisible. But what this makes even more important is the nature of gospel grace visible in the incarnation. Because here is this God who is a spirit who is willing and able to come and add humanity to his divinity without losing his divinity. Anybody else pull that off? I don't think so. And he takes on flesh and lives the life that we should have lived to fulfill the law. He dies the death that we should have died because we broke the law. And then he gloriously rises again to prove that he's God and vindicate everything that has been said for thousands of years. So this God who is a spirit is willing to do that for us. Oh, friends. This is a gospel gratitude moment for us. This should well up within us a great sense of, wow, and he did that for me. But that's not all. Because this God didn't just do this in kind of a, well, we just need to pay for this mess that we've made, but I'm going to do it begrudgingly. He did it, he did it in an active way, and this passage shows us this, an invitational way in the passage shows us this. Look back at this. It says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, we're going to talk about the, the type of people here in just a moment. I purposely put this in a different order because of how we need to spend our time. But the Father is seeking people to worship him. Now, when we say something like this today, that might sound like God has gotten on, you know, eHarmony or... Christian Tinder or whatever, and he's like, I just really need some people to worship me. Gosh, I hope somebody doesn't swipe the wrong way. That's exactly the opposite of what's being said here. What he's saying is that God is seeking out relationship. He's seeking out connection. He is giving people the greatest gift that could ever be given, which is himself. He is seeking to be worshipped, and guess what? It's going to be the greatest thing for the worshipers that could ever happen in the world. Because he is the most important thing, person, in the world, in all the worlds, in all the universe. So the fact that he is spirit, he incarnates himself, and then he seeks people to worship him, it's a huge deal. But that's not all. That he also wants them to worship in a certain way. And I think that's fine. Because it's his deal. It's his planet. We are his people. He can set this up however he wants. And the way he wants to be worshipped, it says here, is in spirit and truth. And believe it or not, there's a fair amount, I wouldn't call it disagreement, but there's kind of some different teaching out here on this. And oddly enough, when I first started in ministry... What I'm about to say, I don't know that I would have said, but this is where I'm at now. 
And then I'll make sense of that in just a second. The word spirit that is used here, I don't think is referring to the Holy Spirit here, okay? Now, do we need to be led by the Spirit in our worship? Absolutely. But that's not what he's saying here. That, that's a separate idea. What he's talking about here is the human spirit. And what he's getting at here is he's talking about the true inner nature of worship, that it comes from our hearts, that it comes from within, that it's not simply following through, we're going through the program. Okay, we've done this, we've done this. Okay, now take the table. All right. God, God is not interested in robotic nonsense. And guess what? Most people aren't either, okay? But that's what he's saying here. The worship is to come from within. It's to come from the human spirit. It's talking about the heart and the posture, that it's coming from our inner being. That's when authentic worship happens. But also, it is to happen with truth. Now, people do generally agree on this, I hope. What he's talking about here is it needs to be in line with the Bible. Now, where we kind of get sideways is there's people that are kind of doing some things that I'm questioning on whether or not they're in the Bible, or if I'm totally honest, I would just flat say, that's not in the Bible. We should probably cease and desist on that, but ultimately that's between them and the Lord, and we're trying to do the best we can here. But the point is that everything we do needs to be in line with the truth, which is revealed in the scriptures, and that's part of why the Bible is a big deal. That's why this kind of preaching and teaching is a big deal. It's not just because this is my conviction and the conviction of the elders. It's because when we open the book and we're doing it the best we can, God is speaking to us. That's why careful exposition, whether you do it this way or you do it a different way, it matters. It's not just opinions. It's not just funny stories. It's not just creative illustrations. The goal is truth. Because God wants to be worshipped in spirit and truth, and it's his idea, and he gets to make the rules. And let me tell you something. After doing some of it in the early, early days of my ministry the other way and doing it this way, this is the better way. Because it creates disciples that can stand up when the storm of life comes and seeks to rip out their tree by the roots. We need truth. We need scripture on which to build our lives. And when we have that, worshiping in the spirit, I wouldn't say it's a non-issue, but it's almost a non-issue. Because if you're hearing the truth, and you think back to the first point or the second point we had today about good news and bad news, if you get the bad news, we don't have to cajole you to sing. Because if you know you've been forgiven, you know what you want to do? <laughs> you want to sing. If you know that Jesus has brought you from the darkness into the light, you want to tell somebody about that. If we worship in spirit and truth, the truth will lead us to worship in the spirit. And then beyond that, when we get into trying to be led by the spirit in our gatherings, hey, we're going to know where to go. Because the truth is our compass. It is our guide. And he will help us do that. I also found a couple other things this week that 
kind of fall under this same heading that I think are too good not to share. Let me give you one of them here. Spurgeon said this, he said, when, when he was talking about the people's need, particularly preachers, to be full of the word of God, he said, when you cut the preacher, the blood he bleeds should be bibline. One of the commentators I looked at, Preach the Word guys, I always love their stuff. He went on to say this. He said, not only do we be, need to be people of the Word, but we need to be people who think. Worship is not a mindless activity. It includes mental interaction with the truth about God. We also need to develop the ability to hold contrasting truths about God and devotional tension. And you know what he means by that. Things that, that seem like, how can this be? On the one hand, we see him as the mighty, eternal, transcendent creator who holds the universe together, Hebrews 1.3. But on the other hand, we hold him to also be the one who said, O Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings in Matthew 23. We must see all of God through his word if we want to worship him in truth. So friends, the careful study of scripture is not the enemy of a spirit-filled worship service. It is the fuel for the fire. We worship spirit and truth. And the Spirit leads us and guides us into all truth. And he shines the spotlight on Jesus. That's what he does. And speaking of the spotlight on Jesus, that's where we need to end tonight. Look at verse 25. It says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. So she's, she's picking up a little bit now. Hey, hey, something's going on here. I know there's one coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Isn't that wonderful? I who speak to you am he. So the living water is great. The fact that it never runs out is great. But at the end of the day, you know what you need most? You need me. Only Jesus could say that. Any of the rest of us say that, and we're idolatrous. But Jesus says that. He speaks the truth. He is the Messiah that they had all been looking for. And you know, it's fascinating. Because this is either the only or one of the only times where Jesus voluntarily declares his Messiahship. The synoptic gospels show that he normally didn't make such a public claim. And you might say, why? <laughs> Wasn't that why he came? Well, it was. But think about where he is when this is happening. He is in Samaria talking to this woman. And to make this kind of claim over in the Jewish areas, when they heard the word Messiah, what did they think? Political freedom, overthrow, Romans off our back. We're taking this land, all this stuff. So Jesus wasn't trumpeting that aspect of his character there because he knew it was going to be misunderstood. But here, 
he speaks directly to this woman, highlights what he needs to say and what she needs to hear, and shows us again the specificity and the care and the sovereign move in his ministry. So let's say it like this. Jesus knows how to deal with whatever you have going on. He's not just a generalized Savior. He is a specific help available to you, Messiah. And you can trust him. What did he say back in verse 22? Salvation has come out from the Jews. That's what they said thousands of years ago. And some people believe, and I think they're probably right, this statement that he makes here is the real payoff of the conversation with the woman of the, at the well. All the other stuff's important, but this is the real payoff. I who speak to you am he. So let's take this a step further for us. The one who speaks to you tonight through this word is Jesus the Messiah. And whatever help you need, he has it. Whatever struggle you have, he is available. Whatever burden that is weighing you down, he is able to help you. And as one last statement, in all that we've talked about tonight, man, we've covered a lot of ground. I just want to put this exclamation mark at the end of all that we've looked at. That again, this Messiah is not disinterested. He loves you. He loves you. And I found this little story about, there was a preacher named Leslie Weatherhead. He was a famous English preacher quite some time ago. He was out on a Mediterranean sea cruise, and you talk about interesting providence. He's out apparently on the ship deck, and he gets to witness the nocturnal eruption of the famous island volcano of Stromboli. And he and the other passengers stand there for something like four hours, and they watch as the whole sky was aglow with this marvelous display. And Weatherhead was a preacher. He had a way with words. He reflected on what he seen or had seen, and he concluded that the few hours of the fires had been burning in the mountain's heart, they had been burning since the foundation of the world was revealed. And so he wrote this little poem in response, and he said, I sometimes think about the cross, and I shut my eyes and try to see the cruel nails and crown of thorns and Jesus crucified for me. But even if I could see him die, I could but see a little part of that great love which, like a fire, is always burning in his heart. Friends, the fiery-hearted love of God is burning for you tonight. He is the Messiah that we have all. And for some of us, that means that, like this woman, 
We need to face our sin head on, and we need to turn to Christ and become a Christian. If that strikes a chord with you, in just a minute when the rest of us take the table, you hold off, but let's talk about how you can meet Jesus. For the rest of us who've already made that turn, how does that burning heart love of God melt your heart tonight? How does the Holy Spirit want to apply these truths that we've learned to you? Friends, wherever it may be, let's listen and let's respond and let's see what only God can do. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for all the things that it does in our lives. That it informs, it instructs, it corrects, it encourages, it humbles, it shapes it calls out, it inspires, it directs. And Lord, in a passage like this, we need all of it. But we thank you that you can do all of it through the same word. So we pray that you would continue to speak to us now. And church, let's take just a moment and let's just pray together silently that the Lord would write these truths in our hearts. And that we would respond to whatever the Lord is saying to us. Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' mighty name.